Our God and Father, we thank you again for this immense privilege we have this Lord's Day of gathering together. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom in which we enjoy to do so. We commend into your hands this day, Lord, those that will gather throughout this world that do not enjoy this freedom as we do to worship your name this morning. Lord, we pray especially for our brothers and sisters of the persecuted church this morning. Lord, for those who will gather and for who gathering is a risk. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them courage, that you would give them boldness as they would meet in the name of the Lord Jesus this morning. Father, we thank you that your church is a global church. We thank you, Lord, that in all corners of this earth, today your name will be glorified. We thank you that you are the God, that you are the creator and sustainer of all things, that everything of this world sits within the palm of your hands. And Lord, we take this opportunity this morning to again commit ourselves into the hands of the creator and the sustainer God. We thank you, Lord, that we can lift our voices in praise. We thank you that we can proclaim who you are. We thank you, Lord, for this church family that you have called us into. We thank you, Lord, for the work of this church, for the work of this church over so many decades that seeks to exalt and proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus into a world that so desperately, desperately needs to know you. Father, we pray for those who cannot be with us this morning, though they long to be with us through ill health. I ask, Lord, that you would draw alongside them, that they would know your comfort and your love this morning. Lord, for the number of folks who continue to grieve the loss of loved ones, we ask again this morning for those who are here, as painful as it can be at times to be here in the wake of grief. And for those, Lord, who cannot face being here this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would draw alongside them, that they would know your love and your comfort. And God, now as we come to your word, as we would continue now into John's gospel, as we would wrestle now with the theology of unbelief, Lord, would you give us eyes to read, ears to hear? Would you give us soft hearts of belief? Would we not be those hardened to your word, but Lord, would we receive your word? Will we let it teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us? Lord, thank you that we can be here in your presence now. Bless our time together, we pray. Amen. This morning, we are back in our series in John's Gospel. We're picking up from where it left us a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we're at the end of John chapter 12. This is the real kind of line in the sand now. This is the definitive point where post this, the next passage is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. That is now next week uh, into the upper room. So that is now, the from next week, we are into the final hours of the life of our Lord Jesus. Everything that follows there is uh, those final hours, his death and his resurrection following that. So we come really to, to the very clear end of the public ministry of Jesus within this passage. And we start without Jesus um, on the scene here, as we're told from verse 36. And Jesus comes bursting onto the scene um, in verse 44. But we're going to read John 12 
from verses 36 to 50. The word reads, the unbelief of the people. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in the one who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words eh, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say therefore, I say as the Father has told me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm sure you're all familiar with the date of the 26th of April, 1902. Um, 15,000 people gathered in the west, in the east end of Glasgow. Uh, that crowd gathered to watch Hibs beat Celtic in the Scottish Cup final 1-0. I wasn't quite around then, but a glorious day when Hibs won a trophy. Fabulous. The, the trophy was returning to the home of football, Leith. And if we fast forward to the 19th of May 2012, we are now 110 years later, and we haven't won that trophy since. It was also the day of my 18th birthday, and it was also the day that we played Hearts, our biggest rivals. Friends, if we want to talk about unbelief, speak to a Hibs fan about winning the Scottish Cup. Two, three, maybe even four generations have passed now, and there has not been a sniff of another Scottish Cup. We've been in eight finals since then, and we've been humped in them all. Could this finally be the year, 2012, that the Holy Grail returns to Leith? No, Hearts beat us 5-1, and I had the worst 18th birthday you have ever known. But we then, as Hibs fans, as we do, return into a state of unbelief that it is just not possible. Fast forward then to the 21st of May, 2016. Victoria and I were on a bus from Zambia's capital, uh, Lusaka, up to Kitwe, a few hours north, uh, and Hibs were playing Rangers in the Scottish Cup final. I wasn't there. I'm gutted. I'm reminded frequently I wasn't there. Uh, and at this point, we'd lost 10 finals in a row, and Hibs went, and they beat Rangers 
he found out hours later with the worst signal, with nobody else giving two hoots. But it was a glorious day for me. 114 years between 1902 and 2016. And by the grace of God, may I see it again sometime in my life. But I won't hold them to that. No one really shared my joy, but 114 years passed and unbelief became belief. Now, six years on for that, I'm definitely back in that state of unbelief. But it's interesting, isn't it? I think football fans are a good example for us of an embodiment of what belief and unbelief looks like. Some people have belief, some people don't. And I think this belief takes us then to the very heart of this book, because of course, as we say virtually every week in John's Gospel, the purpose of this book is so that you might uh, believe. And that so by believing, you might have life. So belief then takes us to the very heart of everything uh, this book is about. And really the vital question this morning, the very difficult question for us this morning, is why do some people believe and other people don't. And I think it's a very important precursor to this, to say, this is a hard read. I think this is a really sad read. And as I read this passage frequently this week, I struggled at times to get past these opening two verses. Remember everything we've come from, everything Jesus has done, everything that he said, even the very voice of God the Father broke through from heaven, literally in the passage before in John 12, and still they didn't believe. We're dealing this morning, friends, with the theology of unbelief. We are dealing with the ideas, and really, what does the Bible have to say about unbelief? This is big. This is important. We build doctrine on passages like this. These are the things of God, and, and I hope that I will do the Scriptures in any kind of justice this morning, in explaining and expounding what we have in front of us. But I think it's important for us to start by saying that the Scriptures give us difficult things. And I found this incredibly helpful quote from John Piper this week. I hope it's helpful to you too. And it says this, should all pop up at once. The dark things in the Bible are spoken for the sake of light. The ugly things are spoken for the sake of beauty. The painful things are spoken for the sake of comfort. The sorrowful things are spoken for the sake of joy. And conflict is pictured for the sake of peace. And this is where we're going to go this morning. That this sorrowful state of rejection of Israel will lead to joy. And that's where we're going to end up this morning. This is the picture I want you to, 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 to picture firstly is that, that it's okay for us to find this stuff hard because it is hard. But it's very important that we come to it with open hearts and minds and let the Lord Jesus speak. So, John very helpfully doesn't just tell us that a group of people don't believe, which is very good of him. Um, he provides an explanation of why so many will reject him. Because as we read this, as we read of miracles, his authoritative teaching throughout, even the, the, this audible testimony of the Father just before, he begins to speak to us. John begins to tell us why some don't believe. And the first thing to recognize is that faith does not rest in intellect. 
Because if it did, these, pe- these people had it all. They had all the intellect of the Lord Jesus you could possibly want. Verse 37, he had done many signs before them. They've seen it. They've seen Jesus. They've seen what he can do. They've seen what he said. They've heard it. They've, they, they've, many of them will have watched Lazarus die and rise again. They've seen it all. If anybody was intellectual in their belief and faith in the Lord Jesus, surely it was this crowd, this Jewish crowd that would gather. But all these signs were not enough to persuade some people of the truth of the Lord Jesus. Because what is required for faith is what is required for faith now, and that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There are many who have read this book cover to cover. There are theology lecturers, those who will be frequent in their Greek and their Hebrew, far more knowledgeable than me that do not believe. Because this isn't about how much we know. The Holy Spirit must accompany the Word to remove the scales from our eyes, to unblock our ears, that we might hear and believe. We're confronted with all sorts of challenges in this passage. We're confronted with the question of what is God's role in salvation? We'll hear all sorts of words like Calvinism and predestination and all those sorts of words that will come with this that I'm sure will be loaded terms to you. But I seek not to bring the doctrine that I believe to these scriptures because to try and bring a doctrine to scripture and make it fit is just plain wrong. I seek not to bring my Calvinistic reform tendency to this and make it squeeze, but rather I want what I believe to be shaped by this. I want what I believe and I'm utterly convicted of to be shaped by what the Scriptures would say. So let us unpack then a little of the theology of unbelief, the, the, the God's role in salvation. And, and, and we start then from verse 38. John tells us that that the rejection of Jesus has happened from a preordained, prophesied purpose. It reads, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. We're given here two passages of Isaiah. We're given Isaiah 53. We're given Isaiah 6. So we start then with with this excerpt from Isaiah 53. And it is Isaiah prophesying this widespread rejection of Christ and his message. He then goes on to point out that the people are not capable of believing. And then to support this point, he takes us into Isaiah 6. This text is part of this famous passage of this great vision of God and the calling of a prophet. And in giving Isaiah that commission, God warned him. He warned him that his message would not be received because God had made his verdict now on the nation of Israel. He had blinded them spiritually and given them hard hearts to prevent them from believing. 
800 years before the birth of Christ, it was prophesied that Christ would be rejected. You see, and I think we need to be careful when we come to passages like this, because I think in our minds, where we jump to with a passage like this is all of a sudden, God's shut some kind of shutter immediately, and all of a sudden, these people are incapable. It echoes for us Exodus 9, which is a very different scenario where, where Pharaoh's heart is hardened so that the people might be set free. And what we see and what we begin to look at is God's sovereign intervention for the, his plans and purposes. And he does it in the ways that Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 show us. So how then does God in his sovereignty intervene and blind them? Well, the first thing he did is he sent them the wrong Messiah. He didn't send them the one that they wanted. He didn't send them the one that they were looking for. Instead of this wonderful warrior king, God sent a lowly servant. He sent a man with no majesty, no beauty, no form, nothing desirable about him, knowing that he would be rejected and despised. Their hearts were blinded because they didn't understand who the coming Messiah was. So when the coming Messiah came and was not what they expected, they rejected him. The other passage, Isaiah 6, God is revealing his glory in great splendor and majesty and holiness. But they didn't want that. We're told they love the praise of man. They love men. They love the things of man. They don't really want the things of God. So as soon as this guy comes along and says, follow me, forsake all else, their hearts are hardened and they are driven away by such a request. I think God blinded and hardened them by sending them a Messiah that they were wired to reject. They didn't want his lowliness. They didn't want his servant heart. And they didn't want him. But this is what they would get. And God knew the effect that this would have. And he sent them. He sent his son in human weakness, yet divine glory. And we have the Lord Jesus. You see, they had the wrong picture of who the coming Messiah is, not because Scripture paints a wrong picture for us, anything but, but because they were selective readers. The pictures, the Old Testament pictures they loved were the pictures of this coming warrior, this one coming in great power, the one who would defeat the enemies of God, who would bring judgment to the earth, would exalt the nation of Israel and defeat all her enemies, deliver her from the hands of all of that. And I don't know about you, but if, if you're a Jew looking at that, this is the scripture I'm going to hold on to. This is the stuff I'm going to look at because who wouldn't? With all your heart, you're going to say, this guy, this is who I want. This is the sort of Messiah for me. But then, of course, there are other passages of the Messiah that weren't talked about so much, that weren't emphasized as much. Daniel 9, 
We read of the Messiah being cut off. Isaiah 53, we'll read it as we gather around the communion table and it's full, but Isaiah 53 is just this, this prophetic vision of the man that will go to the cross. And of course, there are others, far more, that will prophesy the death and the rejection of the Messiah, but they are not attractive. They're nowhere near as attractive as these first set of declarations. And I think they were so hung up on the positive things that they missed this balanced view of who the Messiah would be. Therefore, they missed Jesus. And I think one of the lessons for us in that is it is, it is one of the reasons it is so important for us to systematically teach books of the Bible because it makes us teach what is in front of us. It'd be far easier not to. It'd be far easier if I could pick what I liked than what I wanted to speak on. But this makes us confront things. Going from a book, going through a book from start to finish makes us come out of our comfort zone, read things that are difficult. And if we affirm that Scripture is the whole counsel of God, that all of it is good for teaching, correction, and training, then we better believe that it all is. I think there's some helpful things to point out as we, as, as, as we look at this and as we look at Israel's rejection. God doesn't force his people into sin and refuse to rescue them from it. Each one of us here today is a testament to that fact. God saves sinners. That fact in and of itself, of course, is utterly remarkable that this holy and this just God brings those who are dead in their sins into communion with him. And it is nothing, nothing of your own doing, but it is of Calvary that your freedom was bought. Not in your works, friends, not in your families, not on your best days, not on your worst days, not in your worthiness, but by the blood of the lamb that was slain. God does, however, at times, turn sinners over to their sin, which I think is the most, it is the most horrendous of judgments that any person may ever face in the hands of God. You see, if somebody spends all of their days rejecting God, God, I want life without you. I don't want you. I don't need you. There comes a point where God says, have what you want. Okay. And that judgment, of course, in an eternal sense is hell. It is eternal condemnation without the presence of God. And we see it in an earthly sense happening here. God's judgment was brought. And due to the rebellion of the people, God judged them. They were just unable to repent. It was, I don't think it could have been more compellingly brought to them. I don't think there's anything else Jesus needed to do, should have done, could have done. He presented everything to them, yet still they rejected. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is saying that nobody can believe in him unless the Father acts upon your heart. The Holy Spirit, friends, must cause us to be born again. And we are given through that this tremendous gift of faith because that is what faith is. It is not of your doing, but it is that free gift of God 
And it's John's conclusion then that the majority who heard and witnessed the things of Jesus rejected him. John goes on to tell us, verses 42 and 43, that some come to believe, even in the most ferocious opposition to Jesus, eh, the Pharisees, there are some here who believe, however, they kept quiet. It's a scared faith because they believed the Sanhedrin, that's the, 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 the centralized body, if you like, would, it, would expel them. We saw that back in John 9, 22. But of course, among them, we have the likes of Joseph of Arimathea, who would take Jesus' body, the likes of Nicodemus. And that's where we find ourselves. So we look then at, at this picture of God working out his plans and his purposes according to his will, as seen in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, takes us through here. So what then is it that is the root of this unbelief? We very simply find the answer in verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John is saying that when Isaiah wrote of this lowly, meek, despised, suffering servant, and yet when he also wrote of the majesty and the holiness and the glory of God, he is describing Jesus. But you see, friends, our hearts do not seek refuge first and foremost in God. They don't. If God doesn't work, our hearts do not seek those things, do not seek our comfort, our joy, our hope in Him. I think that's a reality today too, as well as it was here, that this call to take up your cross and follow me as Jesus commanded us, most people will reject it because the eyes of the human heart is not attractive. Israel love. One, two, one, two. Right, I'm now not going to move. Israel loved the glory of man. And this man depicted for us in Isaiah 53 is not glorious by their standards. They didn't love the glory of God. And this is God in all his infinite glory before them. And when this suffering, unattractive, suffering Messiah came, no, he wasn't the one. He was rejected. God knew that. God planned for that. God gave them what they needed, yet they rejected it. And this is how their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened. And friends, we see it, don't we, time and time again in our own world. What well, we see it in the scriptures, we see Jesus rebuke time and time again for, for the love of things and the love of people and the love of glory. We see him, of course, eh, multiple times rebuke the Pharisees for the ways that they would speak and the things that they would do in their arrogance. The rich young ruler who is so attached to what he has, Jesus tells him to give it up. The traders that would come to the temple courts, Jesus rebukes them for their greed. And then it is at this point in verse 44, out of just about nowhere, Jesus comes bursting onto the scene in a cry. So let us look then at what our Savior would say to us in this. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. 
And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. From the very first to the very last, Jesus is claiming that he and the Father are one. We'll come in a couple of weeks, John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And this, of course, the, the, the idea of the Son and the Spirit and the Father being one, this idea of a triune God is utterly central both to the gospel and to the foundations of our faith. And the bottom line is, if you do not have Jesus as your Savior, you do not have God as your Father. He's saying here, how you respond to Christ is how you respond to God. Do you repent of your sins and do you trust in Christ for your salvation because of the price that he paid for your sins? That's the question when we ask, do you believe in God? No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. I am the gate. It is all about me. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I'm a bit sad because this is Jesus' last mention of himself as the light of the world. And I love to talk about it when it comes up because it is just the most wonderful picture. We've seen it, it was John 1, 5 that it first came up. Um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. It's a wonderful picture. We've seen it time and time and time again. That those who believe will move from darkness into light, into fellowship with God. And now in these last three verses, the emphasis moves to the words of our Lord Jesus. It moves to the commandment of Jesus, but also then the outcome. And this is where, as I quoted at the beginning, this is where we start to see the joy. If anyone, from verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given uh, me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is the word of God incarnate, taken on flesh. He is the fulfillment of God's word. He is the words. He was the word made flesh with who the scriptures point and focus and center. He is the one of whom the prophets will point to. Is the living word of God. Jesus is the embodiment of the eternal God through whom all things were made. And he tells us, the word I have spoken will judge him. This is the one. This is the one whom everything points forward to. The word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Redeemer. And to reject the Son is to reject God. The word will judge and the word is God and it became flesh in Christ. By the word of his power, all things are upheld, all things were created 
And at the appointed time, he sent his son to be the word, the embodiment, the incarnation. In verse 48, the one who rejects me does not receive my words. They have a judge, and that judge is the word. That is, friends, the very God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired word. It is the words of God that will judge the world. Because God's words are Christ's words, as it is of all of God. And I think it points us, helpfully, as we seek to understand how we look at the authority of the scriptures, to look then at how Jesus understands them very briefly. I don't want to make a big point of it, but it is, of course, with great sadness we see so many seek to undermine the authority of this book. So many in our nation do. We question it. We don't seek to really understand it. And the most helpful question, I think, for me to ask is, how does Jesus view the Bible? How does Jesus view the word? Well, Christ gives it the same authority that came out of his mouth. He is the word become flesh. And may that serve as a warning to us that both as Christ's words were perfect and without error, so too is the word of God inspired by his spirit. So let me then round this up. Let me pull this back. Let me let you leave here with some sense of joy uh, as we can have considered unbelief. As we said, this, this next chapter now focuses on the end, these last hours, this death, this resurrection. And what we need to see now as we enter that is that the, the most horrific, yet the most glorious end of the greatest life ever lived that end was owed to the unbelief of his people. Jesus was crucified because he came to his own and they did not receive him. This was no accident of history. The reason Jesus came into the world was to die in the place of sinners. And you see, it was in that dying, he became the savior of the world. It is in that, friends, that he becomes my saviour and he is yours or can become yours. You see, the unbelief of Israel, Jesus' rejection by his own people was the path that God had planned for him so that he might die in our place and make salvation possible for the whole world. You see, this sad text, this sad text of, of unbelief, of of, of cutting out this, this, this really hard read is designed by John to bring everlasting gladness to the world. Joy to the world is the purpose of this unbelief. And it's God's point and it's God's plan. So where does it leave us? It leaves us God is sovereign over belief and unbelief. 
we commit everything into his hands. He knows what he will do for his plans and his purposes. He will have his way of exalting his own sovereignty, yet also um, giving man that accountability and that responsibility. Of course, over the decade, over the centuries, there have been so many debates of at what point is the spirit involved in that work of salvation? When does man's choice come in? Friends, I haven't a clue. It is a mystery of God, and in the workings, in, in the intimacy of all of that, I don't think we are meant to know. God has to work, yet there is a, a level of response and accountability needed from us. The Holy Spirit must lift the scales from the eyes. Only God can raise the dead. The dead cannot raise themselves. Yet there is responsibility and there is accountability on our shoulders for how we will respond to the message of God. And therefore, we rest assured that his plans will never be thwarted. They will never be destroyed. They will never be changed by anybody's unbelief. Yet nor is he ever prevented from saving his own. You see, friends, our job is to be faithful to the call of the Great Commission. Our call is to be disciple-making disciples. God's sovereignty and who he will save is none of our business, friends. We'll never know. We are not meant to know. Friends, this world needs Jesus. The hope is that revival will come to our land, that we might see everybody in this nation saved. Is that God's plan? Oh, I hope so. Maybe not, probably not, but I hope so. But friends, we have a role to play. And our role is faithfulness to the command of Christ before he left this earth. We find our joy because the root of unbelief points to the glory of Jesus. He is radiant in glory. He is all those magnificent, wonderful, fabulous things. Yet he is meek and lowly and he is gentle. You see, of course, as we've said many times before, the root of all sin is pride. The root of unbelief is to love the glory of man. That is to be centered on us. The praise of us, all about us. And not on the glory of God, the centrality, the supremacy of God. And that is backwards. As the kingdom of God tends to do, it turns the things we think and understand literally upside down. That all of a sudden the things of man that seem great are now not great, yet this lowly and meek servant all of a sudden becomes the greatest. You see, when we love the glory of God more than the glory of man, then we will not reject him, but believe in him. And finally, it just points us. It shows us that this whole story, the rounding up of the public ministry of Jesus, all of it points to the cross on which he would die. He was the glory of Isaiah 6. He was this unattracted suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And because of both, he was rejected by men and destined for the cross and for the salvation of all who might believe. That is God's plan outworking itself. And what is, friends, a difficult passage. But leave in joy, knowing that things are in God's hands, that our call is to be faithful to him amongst that, and that through his plans and his purposes, all might be drawn in.
Let's pray. Father, we cannot comprehend what it would take for you to send your son. What it would take for your son to willingly forsake his divine rights of heaven for a time to come to earth. But Lord, we are so thankful that you sent him and that he came. We are so thankful that you have made a way for us to be drawn in. Lord, would we rest assured in the hands of God that you are working out in your sovereignty, your plans and your purposes. Would you help us to remain faithful to you, to our call as followers of Jesus? Would you help us then, Lord, to focus on the things of you, on the glory of God? And may we not fall into that trap of focusing on the glory of man, things that center on ourselves, things that focus on us. In your name we pray. Amen.